Well, it's been a few months now that we have been making our way through the book of Exodus. This week I was once again just reading one of my favorite books, Pilgrim's Progress by John Bunyan. And I was just struck again how much the book of Exodus is like Pilgrim's Progress. In many ways, Exodus is an Old Testament pilgrim's progress. This morning, we're going to continue on. It's been more than 400 years now, and Israel's finally free from the oppression of Egyptian slavery. God's delivered them as he promised he would, and in their deliverance, they have seen things that no one thought was possible. Plagues of frogs and lice and hail and heartache and the Red Sea parting before them as they safely walked to their freedom. God safely brought his people through the sea, and he saved them from Pharaoh and his chariots. And this miracle of grace that God has performed on behalf of Israel brings them to saving faith in him. And their response, as Devin spoke about last week, their response to this salvation, this deliverance, is to sing and to celebrate and to, with great excitement, look forward to the promised land. It's with great anticipation that the promised land is soon to come. Or is it? Imagine... If you would, your very first cruise. It's an adventure that you have been waiting for for a very long time, and your expectations are high because you've been promised much. On February, Sunday, February 10th at 5 30 a.m., the Carnival Triumph cruise ship was about 150 miles off the coast of the Yucatan Peninsula when a fire broke out in the engine room. The fire was put out without risking anybody's life, but the ship lost power. About 3,100 passengers were supposed to relax and have an adventure of a lifetime. But the circumstances changed everything. After the fire incident in the engine room, the power went out and a lot of things stopped working and the passengers were stuck in the Gulf of Mexico. Elevators weren't working. Toilets wouldn't flush. There was no AC. Rooms were dark. The power failure caused section doors to slam shut. And there was sewage running down the walls and the floors. People had to go to the bathroom in plastic bags and in the showers. They had to wait in line for hours in order to get food. When they went to sleep, the rooms were hot and some had to sleep outside. When they walked in the hallway, the sewage spilled and they could see human waste on the floor. The smell was so bad, many people described the ship like a Petri dish. These thousands of passengers had to live in these conditions for five days until they reached shore. First, they were going to be tugged towards Progreso, Mexico, because it was the closest port to the ship's location. But a strong wind was pushed the ship north towards Alabama, and they finally arrived at shore. But adding another complication... A bus carrying the passengers from the Triumph to New Orleans, where they were to board their charter flights home, broke down on Friday. (laughs) What kind of cruise is that? (laughs) If that had been the description prior to signing up for the cruise, who would do so? Nobody would. Nobody 
would expect things to turn out the way they did on that cruise and what these people had hoped for. And in Exodus 15, verses 22 through 27 this morning, we're going to see the Israelites going on their promised and hope-filled cruise. And read with me, beginning in verse 22 of chapter 15. Then Moses made Israel set out from the Red Sea. And they went into the wilderness of Shur. They went three days in the wilderness and found no water. When they came to Marah, they could not drink the water of Marah because it was bitter. Therefore, it was named Marah. And the people grumbled against Moses, saying, What shall we drink? And he cried to the Lord. The Lord showed him a log, and he threw it into the water, and the water became sweet. Then the Lord made for them a statute and a rule. And there he tested them, saying, If you will diligently listen to the voice of the Lord your God, and do that which is right in his eyes, and give ear to his commandments, and keep all his statutes, I will put none of the diseases on you that I put on the Egyptians, for I am the Lord your healer. Then they came to Elam, where there were twelve springs of water, and seventy palm trees, and they encamped there, by the water. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that you choose to speak to us because you love us. We are your people. You love your people. You love your children. And you have things to say this morning. Lord, I ask that you would give each person here the joy of hearing you speak that you give them the grace to apply what they hear, that you give them hope in your word this morning and remind them of your love for them. Lord, help me to communicate your words well and graciously in Christ's name. Amen. Israel faces a similar experience of our cruise ship friends, but rather than a sea-bound crew, they are wilderness-bound as God, in his cloud, leads them into a barren and arid and difficult land. Why why this three-day journey into the wilderness? Why does God take them through this very first difficulty? They're they're supposed to be headed towards Canaan, the the promised land, this place filled and flowing with milk and honey. I thought we were going to the promised land, I can imagine them saying as Moses leads them into the wilderness. This is not a land of milk and honey. This is not the cruise I signed up for. I think three words this morning can help us understand why God leads Israel into the wilderness. And the first word is circumstances. God promised Israel deliverance and by his grace, it happened after 400 years. God promised them a new home, a land that is flowing with milk and honey, a land of peace and prosperity, a land of much promise. It was much for them to look forward to. And when Israel left Egypt, they made it this decisive break with slavery, with sin. They made this, this break, but there's more that needs to happen in their lives before they arrive home. And it begins as soon as the music stops and the celebrations stops. 
As the sounds of Miriam's song die away, we read this in verse 22. Then Moses made Israel set out from the Red Sea, and they went into the wilderness of Shur. Now, I can't imagine what is going through Israel's mind at this moment. This, is, this, this direction is not a straight shot to Canaan. It's not the cruise of going from just grace directly to glory as they expected. In fact, triumph immediately is followed by tribulation. As Israel will soon learn, the promised land can only be reached by the way of the wilderness. The wilderness here is a hard and difficult and barren and desolate place, but it's the place where they will meet with God. It's a place where God changes people. It's a place where, over time, all go from grace to glory. But right now, it's a place of pilgrimage where Israel and us... As we go through this wilderness are tried physically and tried emotionally and tried spiritually. The wilderness of shore is a wilderness. It is the Australian outback. It is the Mojave Desert. It is the Gobi Desert. It's the Sahara Desert. It is a place of desolation and barrenness and dry, arid, humi- and, and no humidity, no, no water. It is a place where no one would choose to go. And God, in the cloud, leads them there. And in verse 22 It continues on. They went three days into the wilderness. So here they are just walking along three days into this barren and desolate place. They went three days in the wilderness and found no water. Surely this wilderness is become now a place of confusion for Israel. Moses, their leader, is following God in the cloud into this no man's land. And to a person, they're probably asking, why is God leading us here? Why this place? As we see going through the wilderness, it was not necessary for Israel's salvation. That had already happened. Why the wilderness? Because Israel and us. We have much to learn. John McKay, in his commentary, said this. It is God's normal way of working that entering into glory does not immediately follow salvation. Rather, there is a time of preparation to make his people ready for the inheritance he will bestow on them. That was the method he followed in the case of the Israelites. Free they indeed were from the hand of Egyptian control, but they still had much to learn. For one thing, their faith was still very weak, and it would take time for their trust in the Lord to develop so that they would be able to face every set of circumstances without hesitation. They were led into times of difficulty and testing so that their spiritual faculties might be developed. It was one thing to sing the praises of their deliverer on the beach by the Red Sea, and quite another to live out that faith when confronted with the problems of ordinary living. Things aren't any different for us, brothers and sisters. The church now lives in the wilderness between the first and second comings of Christ. 
He came to save. And he will come to lead us home. But in the interim, in the meantime, like Israel, we are on a long and difficult pilgrimage. And we will face the problems of ordinary living. In Acts 14.22, Paul says that through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. Through many tribulations, our salvation is secure in Christ. And God will bring this journey one day to an end. For some of us, sooner than others. But there will be an end. The way is still hard. The difficulty of this pilgrimage is before us. Difficulty and discouragement and suffering and sin and pain and doubt lay along our path through the wilderness. And that is the pathway that the Israelites are beginning to experience immediately after their great salvation. As I read Pilgrim's Progress this week, Christian has just come to the shining gate and he is still bearing his burden. He's led into the, this, this wonderful castle. He meets the interpreter and the interpreter takes him from room to room to room to show him what life is like after salvation. And Christian gets it because interpreter is trying to help him understand there's an easy way and there's a hard way. Broad is the road that leads to destruction. Narrow is the road that leads to life. Like Bunyan's pilgrim, we are making our journey through the wilderness of this world. And in it, we meet with every possible variety of life, endangering circumstances and trials. The world around us has more valleys of darkness than it has green pastures. And our pathway to our final home, which is heaven, is not easy, but it's not meant to be easy. Why does God lead us into the wilderness? And Israel discovers this immediately. The the miracle of the Red Sea suddenly gives way to the reality of their journey. Three days in this barren and desolate wilderness and they find no water. Most assuredly, their water supply up to this point is gone because even a million people can only carry so much water. And so here they are in this dry and barren and desolate place. And suddenly, verse 23, they come to Mara. This oasis appears on the horizon. And hope must have made its way through the camp like a tsunami. Look, there's an oasis. After three days of heat and dryness and thirst... And they see this oasis and they soon discover that it is not a place of hope. Verse 23, when they came to Marah, they could not drink the water of Marah because it was bitter. Therefore, it was named Marah. Do you understand? Moses is telling us here four times in one verse, this is a bitter place. 
Four times he uses the word bitter. When they came to Mara, which means bitter, they could not drink the water of Mara, which is bitter, because it was bitter. Therefore, it was named bitter. <laughs> what do you think Israel was feeling at that moment? Bitterness. They were feeling bitterness. And they only find bitterness and not water. Now, Israel understands bitterness. Just think, just days earlier, on the Passover night, as they were having the Passover meal, one of the things they were to eat were what? Bitter herbs. To remind them of their bitterness in Egypt. The slavery that they were under. The oppression that they were under. And here, with hope stored up after the Red Sea, they find their way after a three-day waterless journey to an oasis that turns out to have no water that they can drink. And their bitterness is revealed. It seems like as they come to Mara, that nothing has changed. That first word describes his circumstance. But the second word that describes this journey is sin. That's the next word, word to help us understand this wilderness experience. In verse 24, and the people grumbled against Moses saying, what shall we drink? What shall we drink? Now, Israel's concern is understandable. Three days without water, families to care for, no drinkable water in sight, no way to water the, the livestock, and stuck in the middle of a wasteland. Their concern is, is appropriate. They are desperate. I would struggle too. You would struggle. How many of us, after working out or walking somewhere or being somewhere without water, and we just say, I'm dying of thirst? You're not really dying of thirst. But we use that expression to talk about how thirsty we are. I would struggle too. The bitterness of their disappointment is evident in their grumbling. For three days, this journey has been hard. It's been hard because God has led them there, and they're wondering why God has led them there. They're wondering what is God doing? Why would he do this to us? What is God up to? Have you ever wondered that in your journey? Why does God allow this to happen? Why is God taking me through this trial? I believe God is sovereign. I believe the, the steps of a good man are ordered by the Lord, as Psalms says. And God, we delight in that way. But but why would God bring me here? Why would God bring them here? You would, but you would think after all that Israel has seen of, of God's power, they would be in a good place to say, okay, listen, I don't know why God brought us here, but, but I trust him. I, I trust him. But that's not what happens. They should have... They should have cried out to God as they did when they were in their slavery. Because when they did cry out to God in their slavery, what did God do? He sends them a deliverer. He sends them Moses. He sends Egypt plagues. He parts the Red Sea. 
He delivers them. He saves them. They know God answers prayer. They know. We know God answers prayer. And here he is. God, it's not like God is not even around. God is present. He's visible. There's a cloud there. So with, with, with all that's going on, right in front of them is God. And they grumble and they complain. Here God is. He's there. He's present. He's visible. He, he proved himself by the plagues and the Red Sea. And why now does he send them to useless water? Because it's the cloud that led them there. And so at this first sign of difficulty, they complain and they grumble to Moses. Really? This trip was your brilliant idea. We're out of water. What are you going to do about it? Now, understand, the problem wasn't a lack of water. The problem was their attitude. Their attitude in the circumstances they faced. Their problem was that they had a sinful attitude in the circumstances and the trial that they were now going through. Just a few days earlier, they are celebrating their salvation and now they're ready to rebel. The response to trial is to complain and sin against God's leadership and his purpose and his plan. That's what they do. And a number of things characterizes Israel's sin. In Psalm 106, it talks about that they were forgetful, referring back to this moment. They were forgetful. They had forgotten just three days earlier what God had done in the Red Sea. They had forgotten. How often do we forget in the midst of our suffering or pain? We get that big IRS bill and we begin to complain. Seriously, God, I faithfully tithe and this is what I get. Ever felt that way? Unexpected bill. And we wonder why God is allowing it to happen. And yet, if we took a moment to remember we would see how God has provided again and again and again in so many ways, ways that we would have never anticipated, ways that are creative, ways that, that God has shown himself to us and we didn't see him. And right now, Israel is not seeing God. They are selfish and ungrateful and immature and most seriously, they lack faith in the goodness of God. Grumbling is all too common in our day and age. We live in a culture based on instant gratification. How many of you, like I do, sit in front of the microwave? It's not going fast enough. It is just, it's not, it's just not moving fast enough. Come on. I'm old enough to remember when there were no microwaves. And you put something in this thing called an oven and you turned on the heat. And at first it had to preheat. Then it had to cook. Now we have microwaves, but they're not fast enough. And we have computers, but they're not fast enough. 
I can't believe this is taking so long. I had an update recently, and I thought, okay, do what they tell me. I don't know anything about computers. Just hit the update thing. So I hit the update thing. I'm working on my message. This is a couple weeks ago. I'm working on my message. I hit the update thing, and it says, the update will be done in 34 minutes. 34 minutes. Seriously? We want things now. We just don't want something. We demand it immediately, thinking we deserve it now. The problem is that we wrongly locate the problem outside rather than within. The real problem for Israel is their bitter attitude, not a lack of water. Our problem is our attitude, not getting what we want at the moment we want it. Philip Ryken in his commentary says this, it is not a sin for us to bring God our problems. He invites us to talk things over with him through prayer. What is a sin, however, is to have a complaining heart that poisons our communion with Christ and robs us of our fellowship with him. The problem is that there there are so many things to complain about. Many. Home. Kids don't obey. Imperfect spouse. Not enough money. Lack of sleep on and on and on or work, not fulfilling too much traffic, not enough money, demanding employer, difficult coworker or church. Music is too loud. Music is too soft. Too many hymns, not enough programs. Nobody greets me. Preaching is boring. Not enough application. Too much application. We just find things to complain about society, too much poverty, racism, corruption, immorality. We complain about it all. All of the above can be a Mara for us, a bitter place in our lives. Again, Philip Ryken says, listen, what what we suffer may be bitter in itself, but however bitter it is, it does not need to make us bitter. The problem at Mara was not water, but bitter people who do not trust God. We have not reached our promised land yet. We are between the coming of Christ and the return of Christ. And we are in a wilderness that we are journeying through as pilgrims that will one day bring us home to heaven with God. But we've not yet reached that promised land. And sometimes in this life, we can reach for things that seem like the promised land. And in reality, they're the very opposite of what God has promised. And the pursuit of those things, whatever makes us happy, whatever makes us feel secure, whatever makes us feel good, those things that we pursue are just the opposite of what we are to most love or who we are to most love. circumstances and sin. And then the last word that describes this wilderness experience that will help us understand what is happening is the word grace. Look at verse 24. And the people grumbled against Moses saying, what shall we drink? And he cried to the Lord 
And the Lord showed him a log, and he threw it into the water, and the water became sweet. God heard Moses' cry. God heard Israel's cry. In, in the, and what is so remarkable in their bitter, complaining attitude, God does not rebuke them or correct them or admonish them. Or in fact, God says nothing to them. He simply and powerfully makes himself known once again to them by providing sweet water. God demonstrates his patient love and care for his people in their moment of need. The water became sweet. The unbelieving world that does not know God finds life bitter. They grumble and they complain about all manner of things. It's because the world is a hard place. It consumes and it destroys. But God in his love and his great mercy sent Christ into our world to rescue us from the slavery of our sin and the oppression of the devil. He came to rescue us from all manner of things that we might be no longer slaves. You know, like Israel, God has rescued us from Egypt. Jesus came, he set us free. He's our Passover lamb who shed his blood on the cross as a sacrifice for our sins. He brought us through the Red Sea. And in Jesus' burial, he passed through the waters of death. Think about that. And he, by his resurrection, he lands safely on the other side. No longer do we drink the bitter water of this life, but sweet water from Christ himself, the fountain of life. Listen, God God was doing more than saving Israel in this wilderness experience. And, And this is the answer to why he leads them into the wilderness and to Mara. In his grace, he's beginning this thing called sanctification. That's what the wilderness experience is about. And it is in grace that God does this. He is transforming his people. He is changing his people. They didn't go straight from grace to glory. They didn't go immediately from salvation from Egypt to the promised land. God had a work to do called sanctification transforming grace was working in their lives. And God does the same for us. We didn't go from being saved to suddenly in heaven. We are in a wilderness and on a pilgrimage ourselves. God's plan was to slowly make them holy. I prefer instant holiness. But he's doing this to teach them to trust him so that they would know him. And he's teaching them to obey him. That's what God is doing. Look at verse 26. 
There the Lord made for them a statute and a rule, and there he tested them, saying, If you will diligently listen to the voice of the Lord your God and do that which is right in his eyes and give ear to his commandments and keep all his statutes, I will put none of the diseases on you that I put on the Egyptians, for I am the Lord your healer. God, in his grace, is providing more than just sweet water. He's giving Israel a critical spiritual lesson to transform them, to give them real hope in the wilderness journey that they're on. Because Wilderness University is now in session for them. And this was their first test. And it was a test that came with absolutely no warning. As all their other future tests will come with. Now, Back in the 60s, we had these things called analog televisions. And, and the one that my mom and dad first bought was all black and white. No such thing as color television back when, when I was a kid until later on. And, and they used to have this thing. Every so often, the public broadcasting system would do this. You'd hear this. This is a test. For the next 60 seconds, this is a test. This is a public warning. And right in the middle of your favorite show, all you're hearing is it was maddening. But at least you know it was a test. And God is, Moses is saying afterwards that God said, I'm going to test them. And he does again and again and again. And the challenge is, is that we, we can often try to end the test too soon. We can try and get through the test too soon. Many years ago, Marilyn and I, when we first got married, we bought, our, we bought a car and we bought a Subaru and we bought it from a private dealer and we thought we got a great deal. It was a great price. It was a great deal. <laughs> if you've ever watched the Andy Griffith show, Barney Fife is like the best character and Barney wants to buy his first car and he meets a little old lady who agrees to sell him her car. And she has, I mean, little old ladies are, they have pure motives. They're in, they have integrity. They're honest. And he buys this car and he's driving Andy around in the car. And all of a sudden everything starts falling apart and the steering wheel comes apart and the mirror drops down in the car. I mean, everything is falling apart. And that is what happened with my Subaru. I drove that Subaru home and the next day it wouldn't start. I had to take it in, get all the spark plugs changed. A, a week later, I'm driving it and the engine catches fire and it, bl- and it just totally, the entire engine. So I had to take that in. They had to put in a, a whole new engine and rewiring. Everything needed to be done. And a, a week after that, I was driving and I get a flat tire. So I happened to be right at a gas station. I pull in, I change the tire. I literally moved to pull out of the gas station and literally the other tire went flat and I, I, I didn't have a spare tire. So I went into the gas station, I bought a tire and I drove from that gas station immediately to a used car lot and said, I never want to see this car again. Call me when it is sold. I, the test was over as far as I was concerned. No more tests. And we can do that in life. We can try and find ways, work ways. How do we get out of this trial? How do we get out of this suffering? How do we get out of this, this transformation that God wants to work in us? How do we get out of the wilderness? I want the promised land now.
God's commands, as he is saying here, are life to us. As we will soon learn in Exodus 20. Israel's salvation is leading to their sanctification. This is an act of grace. And the same is true for us. God doesn't leave us where we begin, brothers and sisters. He's not teaching us to trust him just because he's wanting to do that. He's got a purpose. He's teaching us to trust him because if we trust in something else, it will ruin us. The way he strengthens Israel's faith and our faith is to teach those who have experienced his salvation to obey his words, to follow his statutes, to listen to his voice. Those who who don't obey will suffer, he says, like the Egyptians. They will have plagues put upon them. And understand, as you read through the the Old Testament, you begin to see that actually that happens to Israel because they continue to grumble and complain about God's transforming work. Because they run after things that are going to ruin them. Listen, God's desire in his grace is to bless and not curse. He doesn't test us so that we'll fail, but to help us learn to obey and experience his blessings. God's grace was not only sweet water at Mara, And it wasn't only sanctifying commandments to to help them be transformed. No, God wants to overwhelm Israel and us with his love and his grace. Look a little further in verse 27. Then they came to Elam, where there were 12 springs of water and 70 palm trees, and they encamped there by the water. God led them to a place of abundance. Twelve tribes, twelve wells of water, everybody getting enough, more than their share. It is a place of blessing. And the same is true for us. God has made abundant provision for us by sending his son Jesus to be our savior. In Christ, we have everything we need or could ever want. Second Peter. Peter Peter writes, his divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. All things. In John 7, 37, Jesus tells us that he is our living water. Where we find life. Oh, why the wilderness, brothers and sisters? So that Israel and us can be fashioned more into the image of Christ. This wilderness journey, our wilderness journey, is about transformation. The goal is that the measure of our lives, the way we're measured, is our love for God and our trust and obedience to God. That is why we're walking through the wilderness. That's why Israel is going on this journey. Father, thank you that you love us enough to transform us and that that is an expression of your abundant grace, your abundant care for your people. Lord, I pray as each person here goes home today, they are more aware, more acutely aware of your 
love and grace in the way that you're transforming them. Help each person here to see and experience that grace as they walk through this wilderness to the promised land. May they be able to rejoice, rejoice that you are at work in their lives. In Christ's name, amen. Let me close with our benediction. Jude 24, now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. Love you all. Have a great week. We'll see you next Sunday.